for the third episode of Night Rule. I was very much thrilled to get a chance to speak with Professor Harvey J.K., a very learned, uh, very literate, very intelligent man. I got to get his views on a wide range of topics, including Baby Yoda and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I want to make sure we're covering our base, so our outro today is going to be Naruse Yoshihiro from the album Baseball, that's B-A-S-S-B-A-W-L, Baseball. The name of that track is Captain Chaos. Um, but our first song today will be from one of my all-time favorite albums, Harumi Hasono and Friends. The name of this song is Passion Flower. And after about a minute of that, we'll uh, jump right into the conversation with the illustrious Harvey J.K., Hope you all enjoy it very much indeed. Gretzky was actually like, they not only traded players, but they actually just traded him for money. You could just get cash back then. So oh, it's like, yeah. I'll give you this guy, this guy, this guy for like this left winger, this goalie prospect. And uh, I don't know, give me 10 million too. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so some people call it the Gretzky sale, which is. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Uh, that's right. It's a bitter moment. I mean, he, I'm assuming uh, he said that because he saw the the icon we had for that podcast, which is an image of, of Gretzky crying. Um because uh, I'm not an artist, so I just had to go with the flow on that yeah. one. Um, so how often do you do your, the, the hockey one? How often do you record mm, that? The hockey one's like a little bit more when there's more hockey going on. I try and, we're trying to get one one out a week still here in the off season. Yeah. Uh, not much to talk about, I believe, in the last episode. I should really cross-post it, though, because it was very hard-hitting um, cultural commentary. We talked a lot about Baby Yoda. <laughs> um, as well as um That's funny, I, I've, I've, I have been watching the mandalorian oh we have to talk about that should we just start off with that but let me introduce you first okay uh every everyone welcome to night rule episode three i'm isaac murdoch i am so privileged today to be joined by a uh, professor at what is it the university of wisconsin at green bay although soon to be professor emeritus emeritus. i'm sure he's quite emeritus, emer emeritus. Yeah, my okay. my I, there was a reason I failed both years of Latin. Um, <laughs> That's good. Are, are they going to be able to replace the like? Is there is there a similarly like devilishly handsome roguish type to to take your place <laughs> on campus? Because you need at least one campus rogue. The budgets are so bad. The budgets are so bad that I I, I almost felt guilty stepping out. I, let, I will explain as long as you brought up the fact that I'm I've retired very recently. Um, I would never have retired, not in a million years. But the idea of teaching online, I, I love doing shows online, whether it's you know audio or video, podcast, radio, YouTube. I, I love it because 
then you can, especially if it's video, no, no offense to this event, it's great because you, it's you and the person you're talking with or a small group. And I've been doing quite a few, as you probably know. But the idea of being responsible for a class of anything from 15 to 100 students where you're working with them by way of, and I didn't, I don't like the idea of recording lectures so they can go back and listen. I like, I like the engagement. So when they said that we were going to definitely be going through this pandemic for likely a year, and I imagine this fall semester, maybe even the spring, necessitating online Zooming teaching, you might say, as I said, oh man, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years or so, and I just, I, I don't think I can handle that. And I, 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 I miss teaching, but I don't, I would not miss the, I, I don't miss at all the prospect of having gone into the classroom to do that kind of stuff. So, oh, so that, yeah. that's, well, I think that's it, yeah, remote learning is probably the biggest challenge pedagogy has seen since um, the invention of the term pedagogy. And I don't know what that word means, but maybe you can tell me like, how, how do you, like, I mean, how do you actually have an engaged educational vibe in a, in a zoom call? With, with like lacking any kind of other in-person interaction, like it seems like it would be just extremely difficult to me at any yeah. age. I'm, I'm not even going to begin to try to explain it because the whole idea disgusts me. Okay, just I mean it just was that off-putting, and but what I was saying is I felt a little guilty because I knew that if I retired, the chance that my department would get to replace me at any rank, you know, in no way they would get to replace me with a tenured professor. They would have to go at best to a, a brand new uh, member of the department, which they might have thought was a great idea. But even that is not, a, especially given the pandemic and what is clearly economic crisis, there's no way they can, re they just can't replace me. And I, and also I, I'm for what it's worth, I, this is you know not really relevant to anything, but I, I actually have had three academic careers by which I mean, I've been at the same institution, but I've had three different, utterly different areas of research and teaching over the past 40 or so years. And, and what I mean by that is I actually trained in Latin American studies back in the 70s. That, that was my field. Wow, and, very interesting. We've got to talk about that more. Oh, well, it, it requires Some a whole point. lot of memory. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was great. No, and in fact, I could not have imagined, I mean, I, I assumed that would be my career. But in part because I was at a, I'm at a, I've always been at this small university where budgets for travel and other things were limited. And my, my life involved going back to England fairly regularly for fa because of family. So I'm not English, but be because of my wife's family. And so as a consequence, money was being spent in that sense. And at the same time, I had become basically a devotee, I was reading as much as I could, of a group of British Marxist historians. Um, and, and I actually, and my first book was titled The British, Mar British Marxist Historians on that group. That's right. Yeah. So that, so the, so that's number happened, two, that's your second area of focus. So in, that you're yeah, so in the, right. yeah. In the eighties, I really moved into questions of, well, for lack of a better way of putting it sort of British idea, British history and ideas, especially on the left. And, but in the, and in the course of doing that, I ended up writing a lengthy article for social, the socialist register on a, on the use and abuse of history by the, the new right, both in Britain and the United States, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And when the, when the early 90s were launched, it's like every decade it switches. When the early 90s came up, you know, Reagan left office and I ended up turning that article into a book. And I really threw myself into questions of history and memory and the ways in which ruling classes really do grab hold of the, hijack the past in order to persuade 
those whom they, they hope to contain, the, if you like, the enthusiasms of those whom they rule, they want to contain those, they really do offer them a kind of history that will rationalize the current order of things. And so my, my interest was in, in that process. And I did, uh, so I did a book called The Powers of the Past, which was basically about Thatcher, Reagan, and the British and American New Rights and how they pursued the use and abuse of history, both rhetorically and to use the word we mentioned before, pedagogically, meaning educationally. Um, and, then I did another, and then I did another book soon after called, titled, well, it was a collection of my speeches and essays and things like that, titled, uh, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History? And so I really was during that period of time throwing myself into those questions. But at the same time, boy, we would be here three hours if I told you my life story about this. That's okay. My, my childhood hero was Thomas Paine. And in the course of the sort of very early 90s, a friend of mine, uh, a fellow named Paul Buell, an outstanding left historian here in the United States, who's retired now and lives down in Madison, Wisconsin. He, um, he, he and I started to talk about the possibility of doing this book called The American Radical. And it would be like, you know, 40 to 50 short biographical essays by the foremost biographer of, of the American Radical uh, uh, to be included. So it, it included everything from Pontiac and Neal and the Native American leaders and Thomas Paine all the way through to Abby Hoffman, Michael Harrington, the socialist, Audre Lorde, the um, black feminist, lesbian poet. I mean, it was uh, it's really a quite a, quite an interesting book, still still in print. Um, and by doing that, I ended up again, it's, I'll, I won't tell the full story, I ended up writing the short piece on Thomas Paine. It was my first time ever in all the years that I admired Paine that I wrote about him. And in, when the book came out, the, the director of children's and young adult publishing, and I ended up in a conversation at a conference, again, a long story, but she said, wow, I really like that American Radical volume. Maybe we could do something like that for kids. Well, that volume never turned into a book for kids, but she asked me if I'd be interested in doing a young adult biography of Thomas Paine, which which was one of the most fun writing projects I ever I ever had because Oxford went out and got the photos, and we put this book together. You know, a book of about 120 pages for 15 to 21 year olds, and if I, I'll be modest, it won the New York Public Library Award in 2000 and maybe one for the best book for the teen age. And so, and then I decided, hell, I'm not giving up my childhood here. I'll write an adult book about pain and his legacy in America. So what you saw was Latin America, Britain, back to the United States, which, well, not back, but to the United States. And people used to joke and say, well, what are you going to do next? And, and I, I never moved on, really. I, I had no idea what I would have done next. Maybe I should have done Canada. Who knows? No, no, no. No. Uh, yeah. Professor Harvey J.K. is author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, uh, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, FDR and Democracy. I think it's fair to say you're one of uh, you're one of the world's foremost uh, experts on FDR as well. Right. Well, I, mean, I, 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 I want you to continue to be immodest because immodesty is one of the one of the pillars of our brand here. So well, let me put it this way. There are people who have written major biographies of FDR. And no, and will tell you things that I don't even, I mean, could tell you things I don't even know about FDR. I'm not, I don't really care tremendously about the personal lives of presidents or kings, queens, or anybody else. What really fascinated me about FDR and was number one, 
his speeches are far more radical than most historians have ever acknowledged. Two, his politics have been, were, were ignored, his real politics of the 30s were regularly ignored by those who seem to admire him the most, liberal historians. And then the other thing is that when, when I signed the contract to do the Fight for the Four Freedoms, which is titled, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, the, the idea was to show the degree to which that whole generation of, of young adults in the 30s who mature into the 60s and ha having confronted the Great Depression and essentially beaten it and having confronted fascism along with America's allies like Canada and Britain and the Soviets and others, that these folks were the most progressive generation in American history, allowing for the fact that there were anti-Semites among them and they were racist. I, all of that allowed, the fact is, they transformed America in the 20th century between the 1930s and the 1960s more progressively, if you compare it to other generations, than, than probably any other generation transformed American history, other than perhaps the, the revolutionary period and the Civil War period. So, sure. so, so I made the, two, the relationship between Roosevelt and American working people of the 30s through the 60s the theme for my for me, and I'm just not. I'm, so I don't know if I'm the foremost specialist, but I can tell you that I'm willing to go to bat and make an argument for FDR and that generation against any major biographer. How's that? Okay. That's great. I have I have so many things that I'm, I'm looking forward to asking you about. Um, but you know, I want to make sure we hit the important stuff first. So I think in my mind, I want to ask about Baby Yoda. Then we'll talk about uh, FDR. <laughs> okay. And then after once we once we discuss, you know, FDR, Great Depression and maybe like hit that era a little bit, we can come down. We can we can hit Latin America at some point. But to be honest, you know, it's an open ended conversation. So the conversation okay, sure. goes whichever way. We'll just try and steer it back okay. to, you know, some well, let's kind not of worry about path. let's not worry about getting back to the Latin American stuff, because that's quite a while ago. It's probably longer ago than your age. How old are you, by the way? Uh, I'm a Caucasian male, uh, mid to late 30s, <laughs> mid to late thirties. Yeah. Right. Know. So, so I, I basically was in Latin, doing Latin American studies in the seventies and into the eighties. So well, all, like all I wanted to, to, to mention it, mention about it was that it was very much like, um, in the milieu of like national security and the national security apparatus, right? Oh, like a lot of people yeah. in those kinds of disciplines. Yeah. I remember I had a friend of a friend who was a very talented Southeast Asian studies specialist and he was, he was American and he was basically saying like, you know, before he took the, te the teaching gig, he had um, obviously like the other career path was to go and work for, you know, the NSA or oh. the CIA or something, well, right? Funny, you know what? I'll tell you. I'll t I mean, I don't mind telling people this. Back in when I came back for so I did my graduate, my first graduate degree in England at the University of London, and I I I actually tried to get in the Foreign Service. I took the Foreign Service exam while I was in London at the U.S. Embassy, and I just didn't do well enough even to get an interview. Um, it was the test was nothing as I expected it to be. I thought if you knew history and politics, you were made for the Foreign Service. But it turned out that what I was supposed to know was art history and things like that, which I knew nothing about. So art I, history. Yeah, the Why, test the, that time. Does the Foreign was Service just, just like just like uh, like the pillage the artistic spoils of other countries? Why art history? That's well, such that's a random thing. Way of putting it. No, I think it had to do with that you're meant to be cultured. You know, cultured. That that remember that term from the past? Oh, okay, so you're meant to be upper crust, uh, patrician. Yeah, you know, yeah. Able to able that's to appreciate the finer things. What a bizarre. Right. So that. <laughs> right. So I didn't do well. So when I came back to the states after the master's degree, I could have stayed on for the PhD, but I was, I had absolutely no money left and. I didn't want to borrow even more than I had borrowed and so on and so forth. So I came back and um, boy, it's, 
we could do it a whole hour just on my search for a job when I was 22, 23. Ah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but it, what was funny was um, whenever I, so I interviewed, whenever I went to interview for a job just to hold me over because I was thinking then about get, applying for PhDs back here in the States. Um, everyone I, you know, when they interviewed me with a master's degree out of London, they, most of the people were convinced I was, um, I was a union organizer. So they just, they, was, they just weren't going to hire me. And then, so I interviewed for, at, for three jobs where the question of one of them was, I, I was desperate to work. I, I interviewed with one of America's leading trucking companies and cause I, I just needed a job. And the guys who interviewed me were like classic New Jersey, almost mafia like characters. And I remember at the end of it, it was all very jovial and friendly. And they said, we can't resist hiring you. That was the way they put it. And I said, well, that's really great. <laughs> what an why? amazing, what an amazing compliment, but also just a weird, weird statement. Well, I said to them, I said, why is that? I said, because we've never had anyone with a master's in international relations working in, in the company. I mean, it was that kind of thing. And, and I said, <laughs> and I thought, and, so, and they actually offered me the job, but they told me that for the first two years, I'd be working nights. Um, and I, and I, at the point that I, there was no way that I wanted to spend two years working nights. Um, so I was substitute teaching in, in high schools at the time, living with my parents, in fact. Then you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. I went from the trucking interview. I went to um, to Madison Avenue. Um, really? One of, and I'm not kidding, the second leading advertising agency in the United States. It was then, I don't know what it's called nowadays, if it's still in McCann Erickson interview. McCann Erickson, they figure prominently in Mad Men. Yeah, exactly. And this is right on, you know, on Madison Avenue, or at least, in, you know, just off Madison Avenue, as I recollect. And what was funny was I was interviewed in order to possibly become the junior account executive for the Miller Beer account. Okay. That's that's. Have you watched Man Man? That's a scene in, in the finale. No, I couldn't I think, bear well. the thought. No, of I course, of course. Well, what's funny was, and the guy who was the, the account, the senior account executive, he wasn't that much old. I mean, I was what? Actually, I was like 23. He must have been no older than 35. And we we got along great. And he said to me, "You're going to work your ass off, like five or five or six days a week. But you know what? When we go to shoot the ads in the Caribbean, it'll all be worth it." It was that. It was that kind of thing. And and I, I I actually worried about myself taking that kind of job. I saw my life becoming utterly corrupt, and I I I, I mean I hated the the prospect. And then are you saying wait are you, are you saying that there's a corrupting moral influence associated with the advertising industry? I've never I, heard this. I'm sorry, this. I, I really shouldn't have dismissed. It's a it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a they're paragons of virtue. Last I checked. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah. And in fact, I knew what the ads he was talking about. But you know, this was funny. I I remember I said to him, you know. I generally, I don't, I don't drink as much beer as, as I used to when I was in college. And he, and he said, why is that? I said, well, you know, I lived in England and I really, I really preferred European beers to, to what the, the, the stuff we were drinking over here. And he said, and I said, do you think, do you th I said something like, do, do you think if uh, I could try another beer? I mean, I, we were just schmoozing about this. And he said, look, as far as I, and he says, as far as I'm concerned, all the beers, in, he said this to me, that all the beers in America taste the same. The only thing that distinguishes them is the taste of the water where the brewery's located. It was, it was that kind of thing. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly a committed kind of, I mean, I, the whole idea mm. of doing it was just utterly ridiculous. 
And then I interviewed. Now this one is interesting. Okay, this one is interesting. I Actually, really hold on. Can I can I stop you there really quick? Just before yeah. we move on from advertising. Okay, I do need to read our sponsor here. This is a perfect segue. Okay. Really quick. Okay. So um, today's episode is sponsored in part by Homicidal Maniacs. <laughs> do you often find yourself walking dark, half-deserted streets late at night? Oh, do you live in a ground-level apartment with old windows? Homicidal Maniacs are there for you. Once, we were relegated to only your most paranoid of fantasies, but homicidal maniacs are now, in fact, available in your city or town 24 hours a day. <laughs> Shopping this Christmas for that special someone who sadly already has everything? Send us a note at g8k43 at sharpmail.com with a description and location of the individual in question. For best results, please be sure to list the valuables we can expect to find on them. Or call us now at 1-187-HOMI to meet any of your homicidal needs. That's 1-187-HOMI. $5.95 for the first minute, 5 to 10 years for each additional minute. Uh, remember to use promo code 187 so we know who sent you. Okay, sorry about that, Harvey. Hey, Isaac, uh, Isaac so... before, we go, before we go back to anything I was saying, I got to tell you. Are, you. are you familiar with, this goes back before your time, Fire Sign Theater? Fire Sign Theater? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was called Fireside. Was it Fireside or Fireside? It might theater? ring a vague bell, but a distant okay. bell. Well, what you your 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 commercial sponsor <laughs> reminds me of of the kinds of uh, skits they used to do. They're I don't know if they're available on YouTube. I think they're more likely a audio. They were doing audio stuff, but that, that, like they did one called uh, the Grim Reaper. So it was a play on on quiz show games. Okay, right. and the idea was that. You would enter, you know, it was like th three contestants and they would all be shot up with, a, well, this isn't funny in light of the pandemic, but they would all be shot up with a deadly virus. Okay? <laughs> yeah, and, maybe not right now. <laughs> and, and, they, and they would have to, and based on the symptoms they were suffering, they would try to figure out what it was. And if only when they could figure it out would they get the... Uh, the pill, you know. That. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. I mean, it was when I was in, co I think I was in college when I used to listen to their stuff. Anyhow, so. Uh, I'll have to check that out for sure. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah, I take that as a compliment. Thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah I'm happy was... to have, it's happy to have the, you know, happy to have them on board. You know, you got to keep, we got to keep the lights on here if we're to kill the lights at some point, so. Well, I'm surprised you didn't cut me off when I said I was going to have to work nights for the tr trucking company, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been apropos as well. Um, yeah, right. So and hold that, on, but. But yeah. before we get to Baby Yoda, tell me, so after you left advertising, oh, yeah. what so was the next stop? The, the next stop was Wall Street. You'll love this one. Oh, my so, God. This one I actually took. Listen to this. Okay. So I was really getting desperate. I wanted at least to use my, my degree for something in Latin American studies. And I saw, I saw an ad in The Economist magazine by Lloyds Bank International. And they said... You know, we've been we were nationalized in Chile under you know this back in '73. They're, they're a British bank, very famous British yes. bank, right? Lloyd's famous of British bank. No, that's a, that's an insurance, a brokerage house. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Lloyd's, big, Lloyd's is this was one yeah. of the four major British banks, and they're um, and they were especially they had gone really decades ago, or at least some time ago, they had gone global by way of buying the Bank of London in South America, and then they bought while I was there. They bought a Cal one of the big California banks, so they, it was big, needless to say. So they never had had a, they had never hired an American international lending officer, and I sent a letter back to London to the headquarters and I said, hey, you know, I, 
I got my degree in London, which and the and the University of London, the Latin American Studies program did receive monies from Lloyd's Bank. It, they helped underwrite the, the whole program. So I I said you've had a good you've had a good year despite hard hard times and you know any chance you'd be interested. And I got a phone call from uh, from their the senior vice president in their New York office saying why don't you come in and we'll and we'll talk. And I actually did get offered the job and I was I was so desperate and. I took the job. I was on Wall Street as a trainee international lending officer for, it wasn't quite a year, nothing like a full year. But along the way, it was a real education. I mean, there are lots of boring moments, terribly boring moments, and I won't repeat all of them. But one discovered just how just how utterly corrupt so much of uh, international banking was. Um, so, are you, are you saying we can't trust the LIBOR rate? Again, a, a paragon of virtue. Harvey, I don't know. I don't know where you ever heard that bankers and Wall Street executives well, had I, anything I, but the highest, the highest moral authority. Yeah, I was the priests of our nation. Right. I wasn't. Let me put it this way. <laughs> I saw the wolf of Wall Street. I know. I know what they're getting up to. No. Let me let me put it this way. I didn't expect that I would be confronted so quickly with the truths. In other words, I thought as a trainee, they would kind of like you know it would all be. At, I'll give an example of what I mean. This, this I'll never forget this as long as I live this event. In fact, I've lived a long, fairly long time from that since then. Um, so part of my the way they were training me since they had no official training program and I was their first American trainee is they were just going to put me in every every division of of the of the bank's offices, which was two floors at 95 Wall Street. This was back in the early 70s, and. So one of the time, one of the assignments, which lasted like two weeks, and this was, at, for most of the time, the most boring two weeks of, of my entire life, maybe even more boring than working on an assembly line, which I also did. Um, so I was assigned to the reception area. Okay. Okay. And what that involved is that the, the offices were up, up, up on a higher floor, but the reception area was down on ground floor. And that was at a time where they were not really allowed to accept it. They didn't take accounts in New York. Uh, I think then there was a name for like the EDGE Act or whatever else that international banks could only do certain kinds of operations on Wall Street and they couldn't get into regular commercial banking. Nevertheless, I was down to reception because they did lots of lots of things that involved receiving people. <laughs> So I'm saying that I would be I would literally sit there for lengths of time just reading the New York Times. The, that's, uh, you know, you know, the New York Times, but also the New York Daily News and the Wall Street Journal, whatever papers were available because I had to keep myself occupied. And I remember saying to the guy, the, the vice president, not the senior, but the vice president who, who oversaw my, my training, I said, you know, I'm really not doing anything out there. He goes, no, no, you'll see there'll be important stuff. So one day I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm dressed in my suit and this guy walks in very nicely dressed, three piece suit. Um, and he says to me, can we be alone? And this is all in Spanish, by the way. And I said, well, I said, we could go into one of these nearby offices. He said, no, no, I need somewhere away from we Can we go somewhere really alone? And and I and I said, okay. well, let me let, let me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I said, well, let, let me just let, let me I'll be right back. So I went to see this. The, the, what, the did, what did he what did he say in Spanish? He Remember? said, oh, yeah, I was like, Podemos. Uh, uh, I can't. Well, I, that's I only remember Podemos. Can we? Okay. okay. So so which is not to be confused with the Spanish political party. I think was that Podemos? I think they, uh, you know, yes, we can. It's a good. Well, I mean, it makes sense if it was a political party. Can we? That's a good sure. that's a good name for a political so, party. So, yeah. <laughs> So I went to see, I even know the guy, the name of the vice president, I will not use his name when I tell the story. 
And I said to him, Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wait a little while longer before we let the slander train leave the station. On yeah. The podcast, well, so. I, all I know is I'll. So his first name I can use, Phil. I said, Phil. There's this fellow downstairs, and I, you know, explained, and he said, No, no, just take him into the men's room. Don't worry. <laughs> I said, What? So we go into the men's room, and he he takes off his jacket, he un, you know unbuttons his vest, lifts up his shirt, and he pulls off a money belt. Okay. And and in the money belt were big bills. I mean, big bills. I, I swear to you, it was probably, you know, I tell people this, and it's really amazing. It, it must have been like $50,000 that he had. Quick aside, quick aside here. The, is the money belt the best of belts? I think it's probably the best belt you could really get. <laughs> right, you except know, I, I like Corinthian leather and all that, but nothing beats yeah, like nothing 50, beats 000. nothing beats a money belt that has money in it. Let's put it that way. Exactly. So he, he hands me this money, and I'm thinking to myself, my God, I got fifty thousand. Think about what that would be today. That'd be what, like half a million dollars, if you're thinking, you know, what are we, fifty years later? Sure, yeah. Okay, so it's got to be at least a quarter of a million, possibly fifty, uh, five hundred million, half a million. So it had to be two fifty up. So what? So I took it to Phil and I said, what do I do with this? He says, take it to so-and-so. And what they did is they then put it through the machine to check for counterfeits. And what it was is that this guy had come up from Buenos Aires in Argentina. Uh -huh. And um, the thing is that the bank was very big in, in Argentina, but this was the time of the Tupamaro guerrillas. And these were folks who were you know, basically leftist guerrilla groups. And they were most known for taking hostages from wealthy families in order Sorry, to... this is in this is in Chile. No, and in, in or Argentina. Argentina. No, yeah, Chile yeah. is the next story. Don't worry. Right. Um, and in Argentina, and um, so the idea was that if you had money down there in the bank, you didn't want it to stay in that branch. You wanted to get it out of the country, so that because the presumption was that the guerrilla groups had people in working in each of the branches of banks in in Buenos Aires. And they would know, they would have access to, to knowing the monies on hand and who to possibly what families should be should be targeted for, for kidnappings. I'm not sure that it involved death all the time. I think it had to do with kidnapping. So the idea was that they would this was money that was smuggled out of Argentina and deposited in a New York branch, which wasn't even supposed to be taking those kind of accounts. So uh, that was a kind of experience. Then there, it, a similar thing happened with a, uh, a doctor came off of a Chilean ship in New York Harbor, came to the bank. I mean, but you know, it, it happened at least twi yeah, two times, definitely large, large sums of money in my hands. And uh, so, and, and I will tell you that there was also an office in the, uh, there was a, a closet for a better way, no better way of putting it, that apparently held the Chilean accounts that had been gotten, secured and removed from Chile before they could be, um, taken possession actually of, so. i i gotta i gotta jump in here one more time um have you found yourself carrying large amounts of cash unable to deposit it in your local bank call 187 homie now do you have uh, trouble getting those stubborn bloodstains out of the carpeted drapes you should have called <laughs> homicidal maniacs that's all i'll say okay last one of the show thank you um, yeah okay so, that's, so, okay. so okay so so, so, so basically you're, you're you've also been like a bag man for for oligarchical families out of Buenos Aires is what yeah, you're telling but, me, but, but good, not through no fault of your own. Yeah, the good news is that actually not long after I started on uh, on Wall Street, I um, I had applied in the previous months, you know, eager to do something. I had applied to do PhDs here in the United States, and I was all of a sudden getting a, f a flood of offers, not only to, to for admission, 
but also for offering me money for fellowship or research assistantship kinds of monies because of the fact that I spoke Spanish and a lot of the departments I was applying to had research projects that, that involved um, the, the need for Spanish. And I think there might have been some caveat in their grants that said they had to hire an American to use the, the monies, whatever it was. So I got offers from you know, Washington State University, University of Illinois, Penn, lots of schools around the country. And so, I, you know, in, in a way, you could say that going into the bathroom, not knowing what, for what reason to watch this guy take his clothes off, really opened a lot of doors for you in the, in the long run. Well, it drove me out of the bank, I could tell you that. But I, I seriously, <laughs> Was that your last day? I, I just, I, I just want to no, know. No, no. But I, here's the, the key thing is, this is going to sound very, 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 very academic. But I can tell you that I... I knew pretty quickly, look, I, I didn't want to be a banker. I didn't want to be in trucking. I didn't want to be on Wall Street. I really had wanted to do something of a, of a public service kind of thing, you know, and I and teaching really did fascinate me as a, as a career. And then I realized that if you're commuting to and from a job, you know, it's a really dulling kind of life. And I couldn't bring myself to read books at night, which were, really horrified me. So you know, I thought politically this was uncomfortable, <laughs> obviously, and yet I wasn't mm. that far left at the time or anything like that, but I, I was definitely on the left. And I thought, you know, whatever the money is, it can't be worth it. And, and even, uh, even if you reduced it to simply the question of, is this the kind of life you want? The answer was no. So I, I, took, a, I, I took a fellowship offer and I went, I tell people I went from LSE, London School of Economics, to LSU, Louisiana State University. <laughs> you know, so, I, I was actually just thinking, I, I think that's a good title for like a jobs, a careers guidance book. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know how much, the, I don't know how good the money is, but it can't be worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry. Um, well, so Louisiana State University, that's in, yeah. um, is that Rouge. in like Baton Rouge? Yeah, yeah. That's right, for three years. And 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 by the way, and be, during that time, that, I, my wife and I got married. Well, my girlfriend and I got married at the time, and, uh, and she's British. And we went to Louisiana. Had and it was Louisiana was great. I, talk, I couldn't imagine a better place to have a good time and study at the same time. It was not a good career move, however, because the LSU is a great university in, in a variety of fields. You know, if you want to study petrochemical engineering and things like that, sure. um, to 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 be uh, a, histor a historical sociologist or a political sociologist, because my first degree was history, the second degree was sort of politics, and the third degree um, at LSU was sort of when you, didn't put your, when you didn't put your socks in the in the hamper was the third yeah, degree. Yeah, right? well, the, what it was is that once you all of a sudden identifiably a Southern PhD, and Northern universities were not hiring Southern PhDs. That that's really quick. Wow. And, and well, and well, here's the, and, but the other kicker was that I wrote a very Marxist dissertation at a very left progressive institution. So I kind of, th the whole thing was kind of, a, it was fun for three years, but my dissertation, which was in uh, basically a study in political economy and history, was, was not readily, it was not the kind of thing Southern universities were looking to hire. And being a New York Jewish kid wasn't exactly the kind of thing that was part of it either. Keep in mind, we're talking 1975, 76, 77. Right that was, that. Uh, I think that was the state tourism motto of Louisiana in the 70s, though, wasn't it? Uh, fun for three years? <laughs> Probably. By the way, the food was great. Football was exceptional. Um, the music was fantastic. 
Um, yeah, I'm sure it's unbelievably good. I've got plans to, to visit New Orleans with a friend uh, sometime once, obviously, well, travel resumes. Yeah, and the, and, and the provincial, you know, the sort of non... New Orleans itself, what, the best food was not in New Orleans, and the best music was not in New Orleans. It was out, mm. of, the, out of the rural areas, out in Cajun country, you know, the mm. French the French Canadians who came down. Sure. And, and on top of I made... And the friends I made were fabulous. It was a great group of people, you know, mostly, almost all Southern boys as you would say um and it was just really fantastic i mean i i but then you know i came out with a phd that was you know i i didn't get a job right away i had to go back to student i went back to you know substitute teaching in high school for a while and then i got a little thing at columbia university got lucky and then i came out up to the midwest so mm. and now you're here you've reached you've reached the heights the highest yeah. heights you possibly could speaking to uh, a random canadian over uh, voice over IP. Can I, can, so I'm gonna, I will tell you something, which is very, it's a very curious thing that's happened. Um, I've, I've been in Canada a few times. I mean, just to make it clear, I've been in Montreal a few times in the course of my life. I've driven through Toronto. I've never actually stepped foot in Toronto. Oh, that's the best, that's the best way to see Toronto, driving I, I right through so. it. Just don't even stop. Don't even stop at the red lights. Just go. <laughs> my, um, my wife's family included people who had emigrated to Canada, and they're, they're part of the family, sort of Welsh. My wife's family was Scottish and Welsh. They ended up in the Vancouver area, and my wife had, like, had gone out to visit them, but I hadn't. I hadn't Vietnam, Vietnam era pogroms of draft dodgers and whatnot, or earlier than that? No, these are, we're talking Brits. They didn't go to oh. Vietnam. Oh, Brits, Vietnam. of course. Yeah, yeah. But what no, I there's a lot, of, a lot of Scottish people actually in, in British Columbia. Yeah, I'm a lot sure. Of people, Scottish yeah. Descent. No, and I, and I expect to get out there at some point. But here, but here's the thing, that um, in this last couple of years, because of these kinds of shows, like the kind you and I are doing, because of the sort of globalized nature of YouTube and all this, I've actually become re fairly decent, pretty good friends with folks I've not met face to face, but who are up in um, Toronto mostly, but with Canadians. And uh, there you go. Well, I won't. I won't hold it against you that you've become friends with Torontonians. Um, well, no, actually, I mean, I think. I think really, like, I personally in there ahead, to defend them properly. One is a, <laughs> is a is a law professor, well, assistant professor of law at York University, but is from Newfoundland. Okay, ah, and Newfoundland. another one is a graduate student, a PhD political science graduate student, and she is actually. I think she kind. Of, I think she grew up maybe Calgary and then Vancouver. And now okay. is doing graduate degree there. So uh. yeah, personally, like I don't really feel that I don't I don't really identify as Canadian that much. I've lived I've lived in the states as well as Canada. Exactly. I kind of have family in both sides, and then also in in um, the UK and whatnot. So well, where were you born? Where were I was born? born in Edmonton. So oh right, of course. And yeah, I, which yeah. is like the Austin the Austin Texas of Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Well, they have the university there, and then they have they have a really big like theater community, for example, like okay. huge theater community, um, wow. and pretty pretty artsy town. Uh, I had no uh, idea. I swear, yeah. are you kidding me? Most, are, are you kidding me? Most people, how 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 could you? How, why would you? I'd be it'd be kind of almost offensive if you did, because Edmonton <laughs> Edmonton Edmontonians thrive, um, you know, thwarted. They're one of those people that that thrive by being thwarted somehow. Um, but wow. I've lived in Vancouver for about twenty years now, so. Really, like, um, I think I think of myself as kind of Canadian American, ultimately, uh -huh. on a certain level. Like, certainly where, culturally. Sorry, where like did you live in the states? Where were you living? Uh, I've lived in California. I've lived in oh. Utah. Wow. I've spent some time in other places. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, 
and I've always been kind of more more interested in terms of when it, when it comes to like history and whatnot in politics. If you have like a, a dual background, Canadian American, it's impossible to not be drawn into the gravity of like American um, politics and culture and history. Like for example, I was raised quite conservative, but like I think probably I was like ten years old watching like Rush Limbaugh and shit like that. Well, I was probably probably watching like Neil Laird News Hour at the same age too. Oh right, oh good um, for you. So where did you go to school? Uh, I went to the U of A for a bit, went to Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver for a bit as well. Yeah, Yeah, that, that's the one that was founded by draft dodgers. So thank you. Thank you to Americans fleeing, um, the horrors of the Vietnam era. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean like a lot of the early faculty, I think were, were Americans that were kind Uh of setting up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there was also this city in British Columbia called Nelson that I think has a pretty proud history of like settlement uh-huh. from that, from that uh-huh. same moment. and that's like my that's assumption like was that if worse came to worse i was going to montreal but i didn't know fr- i mean I, I, oh I no go to montreal like... montreal is the best is i mean i think vancouver is is great because the weather is is quite nice like it's really the mm-hmm. only part of the country where you're not going to get snow on any regular basis and we you know we have a lot of rain in the winter but montreal yeah. they have cold winters but i mean the culture quebec is like a whole it's incredible i mean they make the best coleslaw it's so good oh where where, who has in the best Mon- Montreal, Montreal. They I have to tell you, you brought up a subject very dear to my heart. I actually was thinking for years, I, this must be like the past 30 years, maybe more, 40 years, I have toyed with the idea of for the fun of it, of doing two books strictly for the fun of it with pictures. One was going to be club sandwiches I have known, and the other one was going to be coleslaws I have known. No, you got to call it the slaws I've known. Slaws I have known. Well, because seriously speaking, I think it's an. I think coleslaw is like. How about law of slaw? Oh, I mean coleslaw. Yeah, law. We've, we've talked about this on the hockey podcast too. My uh, my co-host was talking about his grandma's recipe, where she would really she'd shred the coleslaw to get the most surface area you can get, and then oh yeah, get a lot of a lot of nice pepper. I've actually been a big fan of lately. I've been doing a Japanese dish called tonkatsu, which is like a. a breaded and fried uh, pork cutlet, but you always serve that with a whole bunch of just like finely, finely shredded coleslaw. Wow. Yeah. Pretty good. So, well, there's a, there's a, there is a slaw that I, that I, I like diverse slaws, but one of them that I discovered was down to St. Louis at a restaurant um, where it was like carrots and cabbage. And it was, it was like, it was like apple apple cider and vinegar. It was really, really, it was great, absolutely great stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, a, a good slaw. A by good the way, slaw by the way, way, my dinner tonight, slaw. our dinner tonight is lobster rolls and coleslaw. Just so you know. I'm gonna make a kimchi soup. I think myself, most likely. Mm. Um, you ever make a kimchi soup, Professor Harvey J.K.? Well, I, 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 I don't cook. Uh, it's not my. Mm. I eat. Are you are you familiar with the national dish of Korea? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I've always had reservations about it. If, it, it. Given I live in Green Bay, it was a matter of when I traveled to a city that where those opportunities prevailed, I almost always chose sushi over everything else. Uh, so, uh, yeah, sushi's great. But I, I'll tell you, if you ever like any kind of like Asian-style soup, you just take a little bit of bacon, you mm-hmm. cook it up with some sesame oil, then you add water, you add some kimchi, you mix hmm. in mix in some miso in there to give it oh, some body. Sounds great. It sounds and then a couple of vegetables and you're done. Uh-huh. It's the easiest soup in the world. It's rich. Well, feel free hearty. to feel free to, to to get some uh, get some Tupperware, do it up and package it up and send it my way. You know. Oh, it's on the way. It's on the way. We're at <laughs> uh, we're at a little over 40 minutes now. We still haven't talked about Baby Yoda 
or FDR, but I think we can hit both if we try. So well, how far how far into the Mandalorian are you? Let me just ask first I, of all. I'm up to date. Okay. So how did you? I'm guessing there's some kind of uh, like a niece or nephew involved, well, or first, is it, or, or is it just you and your wife are just well, Star Wars fans? Understand so understand is when the, is I saw that I was I'll, I I saw my wife and I saw the first Star Wars film when it came out. Sure. Okay. And, what was that like? That must have been that must have been pretty pretty well, fun. Well, I mean, on the one, I mean, there's a, I have this real sort of childlike imagination. Even now, I'm I think. Um, so I remember we owned a Mustang. In fact, we own a Mustang now. We owned a Mustang, and and after the the closing scene of well, not the close, you know, the the climactic scene, you know, where they destroy the Death Star. Or what's his name? Luke destroys the Death Star. You know, I sat down in the Mustang. And I felt like I was just gotten into my X-wing, something like that. Um, so that was just plain fun. So I, you know, I've went to all the, I, I went to every movie as it came out. I think, the, you know, I think the very first was unmatched, but frankly, because it was just so unique and so different. Um, and the next two were, have okay. you ever, have you ever heard about how his wife, who was the editor basically like saved the first one from being kind of like kind of shitty? No, I didn't. she completely she completely restructured the first the whole first act of the movie. So hmm. when you look when you look at what Lucas is originally planning, he had all these really boring shots of like Luke looking through his binoculars at the space battle. That was how the movie opened. Oh, yeah. and it was really like it was really it was really boring. And then there were scenes with his friends that were really weak. And then she was like, no, no, no you open with the you open with the big ship. Then it goes here. Then it goes here. She restructured the whole opening of the movie, and yeah. there's there's a really no, good great. YouTube video you can watch. That's it's, I think it's called "How Star Wars Was Saved in the Edit." It's worth checking oh, if you out. Remember to, if, don't hesitate to to send me a link if if you think of it. Okay. Okay. You you got it. I still have to send a link. I have to remember to send a link to Ben Burgess that I promised I would. I'm such a okay such a scoundrel well, with that. Okay. So then okay. Well, so and then the next set, you know, when they went back to the original three, the so-called uh, you know the in my mind, prequels, but the one, two, and three, um, I thought the, you know, they were, well, and there were stupidities in them. And the guy who played the young um, Darth Vader, what's his name, that guy? That was, he was just terrible. I was just awful. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. absolutely awful. Oh, the and, script, the problems, the problems were with the scripts of those as well. Like, it's just, just like no real character development or... Yeah, so then, so then... I don't, I'm not even, it took me a while to bother to see the, the last three of them. I mean, I eventually did, but I was, I couldn't resist this idea of the Mandalorian. There was something about it. So I didn't see them at first. And then I guess, I guess what it was is that my wife wanted to see the, the filmed ver version of Hamilton that Disney brought out oh my god and I'm, I'm hoping you said no 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 let's try the mandalorian instead no no well what it is is i refuse to see hamilton so oh, that was thank me. you thank you sir thank but you she, but she had no interest in the Mandalorian. she had no interest in the man keep in mind I'm, I'm i'm the scholar of thomas Paine. alexander hamilton to me was a terrible choice for but uh, to, to make to make a, a broadway show of so um okay so what happened was she, and she had no desire to see the mandalorian so she watched you know the hamilton stuff and then i thought wow i could I, I've paid for this. I could just watch them all at once. So I think I, I didn't marathon them completely, but I watched them intensely. And I thought the first season was outstanding. I mean, absolutely Very strong. Yeah. outstanding. It's, and then it's we maybe it's yeah the second season. I'm not so sure, sure so sure it maintains as well, but oh, it definitely fun. does not. To yeah. my mind, it, there's no way. I mean, I'm already I'm already caught. I'm trapped. I'm not going to give it up. 
because um, there are there are things that occur that I think are, are magnificent, both at a childlike level. How are you? Are you caught up with them? Oh yeah, yeah. So I think Yoda eating the frogs' eggs is it's just it breaks <laughs> me up. It's just hysterical, and it's per, and it's perverse in its own way since we're 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 asked to see that the frog couple as in some ways, you know, equal to a humanoid, right? And then sure. here's Yoda. Here's Yoda eating the, eating the eggs. It's it's a very very interesting moment when he does that each time, right? And that's true. And I, almost, know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that much, but it is true. I mean, it's the tone the whole tone of the series I think is one of its greatest achievements. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course um so it's kind of like a, he's on a quest now and he's going through all of this stuff. And some of the moments are, you know, they're kind of fun, but I there were one or two this season maybe that were fairly compelling. So the one where he arrived in the town where it was like a the the guy had the had some of the the um, Mandalorian uh, armor, sure, and he sure. agreed then to do battle with him to save the town. It was like a classic old western thing, you know. It was like oh, they had a, they had a very similar episode in the first season. That I kind of thought was a lot like uh, I thought Kurosawa asked, you know, with Seven Samurai and like a yeah. they had this village yeah. they had to defend yeah. against. I mean, I'm my problem at this point is I'm I'm basically predicting that in upcoming episodes, he's going to uh, be double crossed by someone about midway through. <laughs> it's like it, the, the stories are starting to get a little a little repetitive yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, although the, there's a lot of things to like about it, no question. Mainly Baby Yoda being like, I mean, I was talking about it with my co-host on the other podcast about like at first I thought Baby Yoda was the product of someone's imagination and they were just some kind of genius. But now I'm convinced it went through some kind of focus group testing process where they just had a baby version of every star Wars character. Yes. And they were, they were all set to work on, you know, the baby R2D2 series. And then the guy running the last focus group rushed into the boardroom and said, no, 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 no guys, baby Yoda, baby Yoda yeah. is the yeah, one. Yeah, No, I, I think you're right. Absolutely. And I have to tell you that it was former students of mine who kept saying, have you seen the Mandalorian yet? And it was especially the young women who just were infatuated with Baby Yoda, and I and I thought Baby, oh, yeah. I thought Baby Yoda at first. I didn't even I couldn't even conceive of what we're, you know I couldn't conceive of it. And then well, Yoda's course, a very sagely wise old you know he's yeah. kind of he's archetypally Baby Yoda is, is the complete antithesis of what Yoda is supposed to yes, be. Yes, that's right. And yet the inquisitiveness in his eyes is really in the way they've you know sort of made him oh, he's he's cute as fuck too i mean yeah. let's 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 be no real no here. absolutely so i kind of look forward to in fact i actually what's funny is i missed i didn't realize that when what what day of the week is it that they actually post them can you tell me that I, uh, i think it's late in the week isn't it isn't no, it on like the friday or something somehow whether i ended up finding out i had missed one so i got to see two back to back which was mm. kind of enjoyable um as a yeah. sidebar to that, have you do you, you watch? Uh, this is on Amazon Prime. Did you watch the Loop? The Loop. Yeah, the loop. yeah. Was mm -hmm. it like ten? It was like ten episodes in the realm of kind of science fiction fantasy. Okay, no, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay, yeah, okay. I just are you a big are you a big science fiction guy? No, I'm not, but I am a fantasy. I, I like fantasy. Okay. Did you and, see the, the the Blade Runner film that came out a couple of years ago? Oh, the one where, yeah, you know, I haven't seen that yet. You know, it's uh, worth, I, I would recommend, I, I waited to watch it until recently, and I really enjoyed it. That's actually a French-Canadian director. Um, uh -huh. Although I, I guess he did Edge of Tomorrow, which, holy, what a piece of shit that was. I watched that, too. But um, well, Blade, Blade Runner, the new yeah. Blade Runner is quite good. It doesn't really have much of an ending, but 
beyond that, it's like one of the, one of the better science fiction films. Yeah, I actually that that yeah, I can imagine that. I, when I was in college, I I spent one summer reading fantasy because I had been you know I read so much history, I wanted an escape, and I ended up I re, I read a novel that summer that to this day, when people ask me the best non the best fictional work I ever read, I say this was the Once and Future King. If you, I, I, it's really well, that rings a bell, yeah. Well, it's basically T. It's T. H. White, written back in the '40s. It's a sort of, it's a very adult kind of rendition of the um, King Arthur story, starting with with when he was a boy and Merlin is his tutor, and the underlying theme, which actually is only fully comes out in what's sort of a a postscript book that had been lost and then rediscovered called the Book of Merlin. The underlying theme that ran through it is, in many ways is the theme of justice. And I won't bother to tell you more than that. So I always recommend that to people as my favorite fictional work. Mm. Yeah, it sounds good. I'll have to check that out for sure. Um, have you ever read in terms of, as long as we're talking about fantasy. Please understand, I'm not, I haven't read a lot of stuff. I, I've That's okay, some... but it, well, I assume you've read, have you ever heard of Micromagus by Voltaire? Oh, I've heard it, but I haven't it's, read it. Uh, it's so good. You can get it online. I mean, it's a, it's a quick read. I think it's probably like, you know, probably no more than 20 pages total. But just in terms of like satire, it's about, you know, this giant who's from a, a planet, you know, 500 times the size of the oh, Earth where they they oh, know yeah. they know of right. a, there's 5,000 elements they know of in the known universe. And then he hooks up with this dwarf who's only, you know, a thousand feet tall from a from another planet that's slightly smaller than his. And they go down <laughs> to Earth and at first they think the whole the whole world is just you know whales for whales and they're like there's no there's no no one to talk to here and then eventually oh. they come across a, a boat filled of uh filled with philosophers on their way to a convention it's great uh, i love it very interesting very very interesting i'm trying to think by the way having said that is this really a this is really a work of social criticism right about humanity perhaps i think so but like you know i think i mean really like science fiction is in is in that has a toe in that well, at least it reason, generally should so i kind of kind of think they cross pollinate well there's this classic you know the classic was a trope i guess i don't know literary terms very well where you basically bring in an outsider into the into your society and that affords an opportunity to criticize for social criticism and right. that's why science fiction was always really a, ma a major vehicle for social criticism and i think people told me that even in the soviet era science fiction served as like the the one social critical you know form of literature but like mm, mm. and i don't know for a fact but e.p thompson who was really one of the greatest historians of the 20th century who was one of my british marxist historians uh very late in his life he died relatively young but late in his life he did a book because he had gotten deeply deeply involved as a leader of the uh, anti anti uh, nukes movement he was a founder a co-founder of uh, CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, years ago, and then later he was really, in essence, the founder and, and voice of END, European Nuclear Disarmament. And he wrote a, a science fiction fantasy novel as a form of social criticism called The Psychaos Papers. Okay. Okay. And, it, and it, it's, it was, for its day, which was would have been sort of, I guess, 80, late 80s, something like that. You know, when, when Reagan was putting new nuclear weapons into Europe in order to scare the Soviets, supposedly, things like that. The Psychaos Papers, yeah, S-Y-K-A-O-S, -S, yeah. And I and people commented when I talked about it, because it was an alien who came, came to Earth, basically. And somebody said, well, that sounds like something uh, that, and I think they actually said Voltaire wrote, something like that. Right, yeah.
Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, I mean, I think it's storytelling of all kinds. Actually, the outsider perspective is a a well worn but like very useful narrative tool in general. You know, you could you could. Yeah. I mean, it's also science fiction, but you look at Frankenstein, which is probably one of my favorite uh, science fiction novels. Uh, mm, has mm. a lot of that, you know, because there's those scenes where Frankenstein is he's he's just like ex- examining people and looking at them, kind of observing yes. surreptitiously from behind yeah. the the bushes, right. like some sort of homicidal maniac. But um, but I, but having said that, let me also say something else, which we'll take up in another episode that when we get to talk, um, is uh, one of the things that that works more effectively, perhaps, is social criticism. Not it works as a great literary device, but in terms of real social criticism, I think the voice of your neighbor or your fellow citizen is more effective. Just for the record. Well, I mean, just look at Mark Twain, right? Look at Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, right. Um, well, I'm kind of obsessed with right now because, uh, and again, I have to have you on again so we can actually talk about FDR. Well, actually, what, you, what we've done, um, what we've done, which we would have done, we should have done last week, is we should have just, we could, unless you enjoyed, unless you want to actually post this, go right ahead. Is no, we, I will we, be. Believe me, this okay, has been fantastic. Well, Are you should, kidding me? You know, it was. I think of this as the preface. To a mm. more serious, to a more serious right. conversation, or that's you know why not informed one. Okay. I mean, I think it's also part of the same conversation because I'm sure you know FDR would have loved Baby Yoda too. I mean, you know, he's he had a beating heart in his chest. Um, well, well, yeah, and well, he had his dog Fala, who he who he used very effectively to attack. He would you know because apparently I think some some writer had attacked his dog or criticized his dog, and and he said you can you know you can you can hate if something like he he basically reveal the stupidity of the right when he said, you're going to come after my dog or something like that. Oh, I, yeah. No, I remember that speech. Yeah. yeah, follow yeah. He said something like, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy if you attack me and my family. But when you stoop <laughs> this low is to attack my dog. Right. Um, and his dog was small, was 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 low uh, physically, you know, down right. close to the earth. <laughs> um, we'll start the wind up procedure. We'll get a couple more minutes in here, though. But let me just check with the captain here. <laughs> Because okay, not too much, because not too much, because I gotta go eat my lobster rolls. Yeah, you gotta eat those lobster rolls, and I gotta make my kimchi soup. Um, well, why don't we just why don't we just leave with this? This is a question from uh, from a listener uh, in the UK named Mark in Croydon. Are we, are we live? Do we actually have listeners right now? Uh, no, I just made this person up. This person <laughs> so Mark asks. Uh, let's see, let me see. I'm pull up Mark's question here. Uh, yeah, why, why, he wants to know. So, so, so he recently he recently uh, bought an FDR doll, and he wants to know why exactly oh, is arranging yes. a model of the greatest liberal hero of the 20th century somehow less cool than pretending to be a Russian pimp on your computer stealing imaginary cars? You know, that's funny. I because you, I, I tell everyone you sent me the video to this thing, which I thought was <laughs> was funny. Well, and then I came to understand why you you posed that question in a, in a note. But I, I can tell you what one of my students. One of my students actually bought me finger puppets of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. This was, this was <laughs> a, a video. Gift. Next time I could show you that. I also have a bust of FDR on my on my uh, desk here, um, and I have a. And then there were some people. Uh, there was a playwright. No, she's she was doing a graduate degree in film writing, you know, screenwriting, mm-hmm. and she asked my. She was going to do a, a model of like a five episode HBO series on top on Thomas Paine and I was her historical advisor on this. And at the end, she sent me a Thomas Paine bobblehead, which mm. I 
which I keep in the living room actually because it's just it's too cool. You might say. No, you so, gotta cherish that. So I like so wait, my. Did, did the, did the like script toys. did the script get picked up or what? Uh, well, she works now. She actually went to work for a, a big Canadian filmmaking company, which I don't recall, and she was too young perhaps to get it. Uh, get it funded, but she keeps in touch every so often. She still has this ambition of doing something around Thomas Paine. So hmm. I'm sure that I do, would be, yeah, I do like great. toys, by the way. So, you know, it's not, not, uh, nothing wrong right. with having an FDR thing. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll put together a listener funded, um, uh, fund and we'll get, we'll get you an FDR doll. Cause there's surprisingly many available online now that I actually, yeah, I'm sure of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Thank thanks so much, Harvey. So great to talk to you. Um, I okay. hope we can do it again sometime soon, and we'll talk more about uh, FDR and oh, some, some heavier hitting topics for part two down. of the discussion. All you gotta do is ask. This was this was fun. Thank you very awesome. much. Awesome. What a fun time I had talking to Professor uh, Harvey J.K. today. For those of you listening, uh, just wanted to give you a heads up that we will be up on more platforms in the next week or two here. So, in the meantime, just hunker down, uh, remain at a state of cat-like readiness, kill the lights. Get ready for bed, and uh, remember, always got to have that base covered. You always, always, always got to cover that base.